Powered by Righteous Media. Welcome to Independent Americans. Welcome to episode 198. I'm your host, Paul Rykoff. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. This Thanksgiving, we have much to be thankful for. But we also have much to think about. Because even Thanksgiving is a time to stay vigilant. We heard everything. We heard more shots fired. We heard uh, the assailant being beat up by someone that I assumed that tackled him. We heard the police come in. We heard them yelling at him. We heard uh, them saying check certain people because they're critical. Um, we, We heard everything and all I can think about is everything. My life. Just everything. Friends, family, loved ones. I came here to celebrate my birthday. Honestly, I was supposed to be in Denver. But I came back a day early. And, like, I just, it's sad. Joshua, what does this mean for the LGBTQ community here in Colorado Springs, this shooting? It's it's hard to say. It means so much because... This is our only safe space here in the Springs. And so for this to get shot up, like, what are we gonna do now? Where are we gonna go? Yeah, we can rebuild and and come together and this, but what about those people that lost their lives for no reason? Like the 18, other 18 that were injured, I could have been one of them. Like, it's it means a lot because again, what are we gonna do now? What are we gonna do now? That's Joshua, a survivor of the Colorado Springs mass shooting last week at an LGBTQ nightclub that took the lives of five Americans. This Thanksgiving, Joshua is thankful simply to be alive. But he said, this was our only safe space in the Springs. Where are we going to go? That's the question. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do now? Because it just keeps happening. This is our demented new normal in America. And we didn't even have time to process and mourn Colorado Springs when another mass shooting happened this week at a Walmart in Virginia. It keeps happening. Six people were shot and killed inside a Walmart in Chesapeake, Virginia on Tuesday night, shattering the routines of people who were picking up supplies for Thanksgiving. It was the second high-profile mass shooting in the United States in three days. It's attack after attack. It keeps happening. And they're all brutal. And the one in Colorado is especially important. And now, an imminent type of attack. This Thanksgiving, the threat to LGBTQ, Jewish, and Asian Americans is high and rising. And it's long past time for the president, Congress, and all of us as Americans to start facing it all like the true national security threat that it is. Imagine if Al-Qaeda did two attacks in three days in 2002. 
Imagine if these were not radicalized white extremists or radicalized teenagers or radicalized disgruntled workers, but imagine if these attackers were radicalized Muslim extremists. Imagine how our country would have responded if al-Qaeda had done this in 2002. Back when America banned pocket knives on planes and made all of us take our shoes off every time we went through a gate and everyone was on guard. Remember, if you see something, say something. Remember when America passed the Patriot Act, spied on our people and created the entire Department of Homeland Security? Shit, we invaded and occupied two countries, supposedly to prevent attacks on Americans by extremists. But here, now, in 2022, more Americans are being killed than were ever killed by radical Islamic extremists from the Middle East or anywhere else. More kids are being killed than American service members were killed in Iraq and Afghanistan. In 2001, 2002, 2003, we mobilized our entire country our entire military, our entire FBI, and most of our international allies to stop attacks against Americans on our homeland. And here, in 2022, 20 years later, we do nothing. There's no national strategy. There's no national response. There's no national call to action. To fight terrorists that hijacked planes and killed 2,996 Americans, we started two wars, at least one of which was terribly misguided. Those two wars, really one gigantic extended global forever war, also killed over 7,000 U.S. service members, all to fight terrorists, all to stop them over there before they killed us over here. And now in 2022, the most recent year for which complete data is available, 45,222 people died from gun-related injuries in the U.S., according to the CDC. So we lost four times the number of people in the U.S. to gun violence every year than we lost in the so-called fight against terrorism. And the unseen losses in those numbers? Suicides. In 2020, 54% of all gun-related deaths in the U.S. were suicides. 43% were murders. And the rest that year were unintentional, involved law enforcement, or were unknown. But the total loss to gun violence in one year was over 45,000 Americans. That's about the same number of civilians that have been killed in Ukraine so far in the war. We lose that number every year in America. And that number continues to climb. But we have no war on gun violence. We have no war on mass shootings. We had a war on drugs that locked up millions of people for simply possessing marijuana. We had a war on poverty that doesn't look like we won. And we had a war on terror that swallowed our country's focus for two decades. But now, as kids and neighbors and friends are slaughtered, nothing. We don't have a strategy to fight back. Our national strategy right now is to surrender, to let the enemy keep coming, to let the enemy keep killing, killing our kids, killing our parents, killing our friends, killing our neighbors every day and in every way. Yet there's no national response whatsoever to fight this enemy. There's no war on the terror of 2022, gun violence. 
But that's the level of security focus we need now to protect our fellow Americans. It's about guns. Make no mistake, it's about guns. But it's also about hate. It's about organized extremist groups. And it's about Trump and the American insurgency. It's all interconnected. And it's about time this country recognized that it's all a national security threat. And our enemies are celebrating. Every time Americans kill other Americans, Putin is celebrating. Every time somebody walks into a place and slaughters fellow Americans, Kim Jong-un is celebrating. As gun violence continues to slaughter Americans, our enemies are celebrating. They don't have to do anything. They can just sit back and watch. But this Thanksgiving, we need a plan to fight back. We need a national, national security-focused strategy from all parts of government and society. We need a war on gun violence. Congress never formally declared war after 9-11 on Iraq or Afghanistan or terrorism or Al-Qaeda. But maybe Congress can exercise that power now. Maybe they can do their job and defend the American people from enemies foreign and domestic. And maybe our president can lead on it. Because it's long past time for this country to get serious and to truly stay vigilant. Because it keeps happening. And because this Thanksgiving especially, stakes is high. This Thanksgiving, stakes are epically high for all Americans and especially for America's children. As winter approaches, the threat of gun violence is constant. As the threat of extremism and political violence continue to rise, it's compounded by a public health trifecta threat of RSV, flu, and COVID that loom over our children, our schools, and our exhausted and fragile public health system. And we've got a guest coming up who's an expert on what we got wrong, what we got right, and what's coming next. So this Thanksgiving season, as you head out on the road, or hunker down at home, or sit around the table, or the TV with your friends and family, or maybe work a double shift, I'm going to give you some good food for your Thanksgiving table of thought with a returning champion guest and a perfect Thanksgiving time conversation. But before we get to that, the mass shootings aren't the only urgent and important news you need to chew on this Thanksgiving. I've got a few nutritious morsels of information to make sure you keep on your radar this holiday season. brutal war in Ukraine continues. This Thanksgiving in America, we should all be thankful for the heroism and tenacity of our friends on the front lines in Ukraine. They continue to make gains and pound Putin's army. Despite the fact that missiles continue to rain down, they battle on. And it continues to get bloodier as Putin's terrorist state continues to focus on the electrical and water targets inside Ukraine. And this week, the European Parliament designated Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. And the U.S. should do the same. We got to continue to pour on the support. It's the turkey, it's the stuffing, it's the mashed potatoes, it's the gravy, it's the whole meal for them. 
which has now totaled $19.7 billion since Biden took office. And last week, the White House appropriately asked Congress to approve another $37 billion in aid to Ukraine, about $22 billion of which would be set aside for military equipment and replacements for weapons that already got sent to the country by the Pentagon, which seems like a pretty good idea because we got to make sure our stockpiles are strong for whatever comes next. And because as I record this, another round of missiles is hitting Kiev. So as we celebrate Thanksgiving in America this week, most of Ukraine is cold, without electricity, and without water. This Thanksgiving, remember the Ukrainians. We can all be thankful that they're holding the line for freedom and for all of us. And we've all got to keep them at the very top of our Thanksgiving radar. And for better or worse, Twitter is still a big story on our Thanksgiving table of news. It's kind of like that thing that nobody wants to eat at the end of the table. I don't know what it is in your family. Maybe it's the Brussels sprouts. Maybe it's a secret sauce. Maybe it's some kind of mysterious casserole. That's Twitter. But it's also the place Ukraine has depended on to share information with the West, especially with the U.S. and the U.K. And it's the place we can most often and most quickly see the true damage and carnage of Putin's aggression and see the true heroism of the Ukrainians. But unfortunately, Twitter continues to be a mess, led by CEO Mayhem himself, Elon Musk. Now, we've talked about him a good bit on this show. And if you're doing some driving or traveling this Thanksgiving, save some room in your content belly and check out our recent conversation with Professor G, Scott Galloway, back in episode 192 where we dug into why Elon Musk's lack of patriotism is particularly egregious. And it's not letting up. Musk is now offering to let Trump back on Twitter. So CEO Mayhem has invited President Mayhem back to the digital public square, which is a very bad move for Twitter, for the world, for America. It's probably good for Twitter's business, though. But Elon Musk has never been much of a patriot or a supporter of global security. And our enemies are celebrating this too. So is the American insurgency. They are grateful. Because Trump is more than just a political scourge. He's America's greatest national security threat. And I've been warning that for years now. And it's more true now than ever before. And unfortunately, he's far from done. At the Trump Thanksgiving table of mayhem, there's a special guest he continues to invite as his co-host for this madness. Someone we focused on on this show and someone you should keep on your radar no matter how much it makes your gut hurt. Carrie Lake, the wannabe Vice President Mayhem herself. As I talked about before, although she's lost the election, she is now formally refusing to accept it. And last week, she posted this video titled, Arizona, we are still in the fight. Our election officials failed us miserably. What happened to Arizonans on election day is unforgivable. Tens of thousands of Maricopa County voters were disenfranchised. Now I am busy here collecting evidence and data. Rest assured, I have assembled the best and brightest legal team, and we are exploring every avenue to correct the many wrongs that have been done this past week. I'm doing everything in my power to right these wrongs. My resolve to fight for you is higher than ever. This movement 
started in Arizona and it quickly expanded to all 50 states. It's a movement of mama bears and papa bears and students. And Arizonans. All right, enough of that shit. Anytime someone starts calling people mama bears and papa bears, I got to cut that shit off. It's propaganda. But it is a movement. And it did start in Arizona, led by Kerry Lake, with plans to expand it across the country with super stupid fuel injection from Donald Trump. It is happening. I've been warning about it for weeks. She will not accept the election results. She will make Arizona ground zero for the MAGA insurgency. And this is a strategy she's telegraphed. And she's even better at it than Trump is. And this week, I tweeted that part that I just said. And guess what? Carrie Lake blocked me. She blocked me. I don't think I've ever been blocked by a politician before. But she's doing a lot of things politicians generally don't do, like denying elections and supporting insurrection. And she's still most likely to be Trump's VP pick and become the number two for the American insurgency. Now, apparently, Carrie Lake didn't like that tweet or my last podcast episode. But nevertheless, I'd like to invite her to be my guest on Independent Americans anytime. I don't want her over for Thanksgiving, but I'll have her on this show because I definitely have some questions. But if her skin is thin enough to block me on Twitter, I doubt she'll come in here for a real conversation. But in the meantime, stay vigilant and keep her on your radar. This Thanksgiving, as these threats rise, we continue to sort through the wreckage of the election this month. Many are thankful, and I hear them. I'm glad so many election deniers lost, but the biggest story remains how well so many of them did. Yeah, Carrie Lake lost, but she still got 49.6%, and 49.6% of any state's voting population is a formidable group that has to be dealt with. We're all thankful this Thanksgiving that the election's over, but it's really not. As we unite around our Thanksgiving tables, America is still divided politically. And don't forget, there's an election to decide the Senate seat in Georgia in just two weeks. Republicans won the House, Democrats have the Senate, and we still have lots of problems. As the great fragmentation of America's politics continues. The Dems and Republicans are now digging in for a trench fight in Washington that'll last for at least the next two years. Meanwhile, the most underreported story of the midterm elections continues to be the independent wave. There wasn't a red wave, but there was a camouflage wave of now 97 veterans total elected to Congress from both parties. And there was an independent wave, as we have explored on this show and will continue to explore going forward, including with Andrew Yang next week. He has committed, he says he's coming, and we'll be bringing it to you. So stay tuned for that. But the independent wave is real. And this week, our friend John Updike, president of Open Primaries, who joined us back on episode 171, another good one to go back and check out this holiday season. Well, John wrote a powerful op-ed in the New York Daily News with Sal Albanese. Sal Albanese, if you don't know, is a former New York City council member and the chair of New Yorkers for Competitive Elections. And the headline was, New York Democrats' future depends on independent voters. 
and it's linked to the show notes in this episode if you want to read the whole thing. But John and Joe issue a warning to both parties. Watch out. Independents are rising. And they talk about exit polls where 96% of Democrats voted for Democrat candidates and 96% of Republicans voted for Republican candidates, which made the independent vote 31% of the midterm electorate all the more crucial. That 31% was the difference. And for the last 40 years, every time a sitting president's party suffered huge losses in the midterms, independents have voted by double-digit margin for the candidates from the other party. This time, they swung 49 to 47% in favor of Democratic candidates. But even those numbers obscure how far they swung in individual state races. John and Joe break it down. Independents comprised 24% of the electorate and broke 57 to 39 for John Fetterman in Pennsylvania against Oz. In Arizona, they were 40% of the electorate that broke 55 to 39 for Democrat Mark Kelly. And they are 24% of the electorate in Georgia and broke 53 to 42 in favor of Raphael Warnock against Herschel Walker. And we'll see how they break on the rematch next month. But across the country, independents rejected the politics of extreme partisanship. They rejected election denial and disinformation. They stood up for leadership, action over rhetoric, and democratic values. John and Joe continue, smug Democrats should be warned. This doesn't mean independents are now in their camp. Far from it. They broke 49 to 48% for Brian Kemp in Georgia and 52 to 46% for Ron DeSantis in Florida. Independents do not vote for parties, they vote for people. And it's the number one reason independents say they are independent. Which leads us to my beloved New York, where no state discriminates against independents more harshly. The state's law excludes independent voters from working as poll workers or serving on boards of elections. Across America, 85% of cities held nonpartisan elections for municipal offices. None of those cities are in New York. New York City, Rochester, Buffalo, all shut out independents from their primaries. Independents here in New York can't vote in state or presidential elections. And there are 3.5 million of us, 1.1 million in New York City alone. And we're all effectively second-class citizens, including me. Now, New York independents have been fighting on this since 2003 to have a seat at the table and a more open democracy. But every step along the way, the Democratic Party blocked them. Every bill for open primaries, every proposal submitted for charter revision commissions, every resolution introduced at the Democratic Party convention has been denounced or ignored. The Democratic Party does not want to let independents in. That can change. That must change. And in their op-ed, John and Joe lay out a four-step solution. First, they should strengthen New York State's Independent Redistricting Commission, which decides how the districts are laid out. Second, they should pass a bill to create nonpartisan primaries for New York State. California, Washington, Nebraska, Alaska have all done this. And Nevada just voted to do the same. We covered it last week on this pod and over the last couple of weeks. Third, they should change Democratic Party rules to allow independent voters to participate in the presidential primary. And the party can do this without changing state law. If you're a Democrat and you're feeling me on this, raise some hell, because it's already been done in Nebraska, Oklahoma, South Dakota, and Utah. 
All they got to do is pass a motion at their convention and presto, 3.4 million voters can have a say in the upcoming presidential election, including the 50% of them that are veterans, like me. Finally, the New York City Council should champion final five voting in New York City. We already have ranked choice voting in closed partisan primaries, which is better than the old system. But none of the other 50 plus cities in the U.S. that use ranked choice voting excludes independents like New York City does. New York City Council and Mayor Eric Adams should endorse a plan to create a single nonpartisan primary open to all candidates and all voters that advances the top five candidates, regardless of party, from the primary to the general election. And the final victor would be decided using ranked choice voting. John and Sal laid out, New York is the worst. That's why it might have to be the first. If we can crack New York, every other state can fall like dominoes. Independent voters have arrived. We are the future. And we want a new political culture based on debate, voter power, innovation, and accountability, not self-interested partisanship. Now, will New York Democrats hear us? Probably not. Will Democrats nationally hear us? Doubtful. And the same is true of the Republicans. We're going to have to take the power back. Now that the election's over, mostly, it's clear that independents are the most powerful group of voters in America. There was no red wave or blue wave, but there was an independent wave. We decided the House and the Senate and most of the most contested elections. And that independent wave isn't stopping at the election. It's continuing to grow as more and more Americans reject both parties, underscored by the fact that independents continue to be the fastest growing group of voters, especially among veterans, Latino Americans, and young people. The future of America is independent. A supermajority of young people, 65%, consider themselves independent and unaffiliated with either major party. 69% of young people feel that neither the Republican or Democratic parties represent them. And 80% of young people believe closed primaries are a problem impacting young voters. Independents are the future. But independents are not well-led, well-united, or well-supported. And in 2023, I intend to change that. And I hope you can join me. Because independent Americans are the difference makers in American politics right now. And independent doesn't mean the middle. It means none of the above. And I disagree with Andrew Yang. It's not a new party. It's no party. Because America is not a party. It's a mission. And this Thanksgiving, while the great fragmentation of the American political system continues, more and more independents are uniting around a Thanksgiving table that is America's future. And that's something we can all be thankful for. This Thanksgiving, the holiday parties are back, but the political parties are weakening. The system is shaking and independents are rising. We've been exploring it on this show for almost 200 episodes. And we've been exploring the most important and urgent issues facing our country. And we'll do it again with our next guest. She joined us way back in episode 57 in May of 2020, when we were all wrestling with the fact that schools weren't going to reopen before the summer break. And we didn't know if they'd be even opening back up in the fall. But we'd find out that they wouldn't. 
She was education correspondent at NPR. She was co-host of NPR's Life Kit, a parenting podcast, and the celebrated author of multiple books, including the author of Screen Time, Generation Debt, and The Test. She was our professor and gave us all a crash course on parenting in the pandemic and more. She's an expert on parenting, on education, on policy, and in a way, she's parenting and educating all of us. She's a brilliant reporter, author, and parent. And she's back to take us all to school. She's Anya Kamenitz. Up in the morning and out to school The teacher is teaching the golden rule American history and practical man You study him hard and hoping to pass So what did we do to our kids? What did we do to our schools? What did we do to our society? And what can we learn for next time? A next time that could be coming real soon. COVID was a global war against the virus. A war that took huge casualties before it ended. And in that war, the world of education was the lead battlefield. A place with the highest casualties. Casualties that we're only now starting to understand. 97% of the world's schools were closed, and the virus upended everything we know about education. Graduations were canceled, dorms were empty, school lunches left uneaten, and millions of kids are changed forever. And we're all changed forever. This Thanksgiving, schools are closed, and it's the perfect time to take the rest of us back to school. With the one you love, you're making romance. So this Thanksgiving, Anya's back with a huge helping of information and perspective to fill your belly and your head with nourishment to take you through the holidays and into a new year. Whether you have kids or not, this is one you need to hear. There's not a lot of reflection happening in Washington right now. But in the military, I learned that after every single engagement, we do an after-action review. What went wrong? What went right? What can we do differently next time so we don't repeat our mistakes, so that we can be thankful and appreciate what we got right, and so we can be stronger for next time, so we can get better? That's what we're going to do in this pod. And Anya is a truly important, inspiring American that's shaping what America's been, what it is, and what it will be, a truly independent American leader. And it's a conversation that will help you get smarter, predict better, and of course, stay vigilant. Because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And this Thanksgiving, we can reflect on that price we've paid. Especially those of us that have an empty seat at our table this Thanksgiving. This Thanksgiving, over one million Americans have died from COVID. That's one million empty seats this Thanksgiving. So maybe we can be thankful that there aren't more. Or maybe we can commit to ensuring it doesn't happen again. Ensure that next year, more kids won't have to be without parents on Thanksgiving. It doesn't happen by wishing it away. It happens by taking action. By not just talking about family around the holiday times, but about taking action to protect and defend them. Not just our own individual families, but our American family. So get your fork and napkin, pour yourself a drink, and let's dig in. Welcome back to the table 
for a discussion about our schools, our kids, our country, and our future. Welcome back to school. Welcome to Thanksgiving 2022. Welcome to Independent Americans, episode 198. gentlemen, independent Americans around the country and around the world. Happy Thanksgiving. We have much to be thankful for. We have much to reflect upon. And I thought this would be the perfect time to bring back a returning champion. As we reflect on family and all that we've got and all that we've lost, I think of um, nobody better to help us break down this issue than a returning champion. The great and powerful Anya Kamenetz rejoins us on Independent Americans. Welcome back, Anya. Thank you so much, my old friend. Good to, ha- good to be here. I'm so psyched to talk to you because I adore your book. So I'm just going to start with that. Uh, we're going to talk about The Stolen Year that I recommend everybody get for Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, and everything in between. Um, I really want to dig into what's happening to our kids and what's happening to our culture as we get to the time of year when somebody spends when people spend so much time with family. Mm-hmm. Um, but before we get to that, last time I spoke to you was May 2020. Yeah. <laughs> it was like right when everything was kind of sinking in and going sideways. Um, but I'm excited to have you back. And let's start with the question I ask of everyone. Where are you? And two years later, how are you? Thanks for asking. I am exactly where I was in May of 2020. I'm in my house in Brooklyn. We stayed in our house in Brooklyn. Um, you know, weathered it out, kept the kids here. Um, and I'm doing pretty well. I mean, I'm, I am looking forward to some rest. The book came out in August. So I've been uh, on the road quite a bit kind of around the country, um, which is great. Love having these conversations, but also it gets very exhausting, especially when you've been home for two years and then all of a sudden you're on a plane every other day. And is, is book tour still a thing? Like, how does that work? I, I see you everywhere and that's great. But like, I remember I wrote my book like a, a millennium ago and like, mm-hmm. um, what is, what is that like now in the post pandemic or pandemic world, however we're going to categorize? I would say nobody knows anything. Um, I do hybrid events. I do books. I've done some bookstore events. Uh, I would say in general, the crowds have been a little smaller, um, not for lack of interest, but just because, you know, people don't show up to things the same way. Um, that they did, but it's starting to come back. I mean, I was at a conference in Boston on Sunday and it was a big conference, like teacher, teacher conference. Um, and they come to hear, you know, the latest kind of ideas and, uh, yeah, people showed up. It was a, it was a full ballroom. Like that was an experience I hadn't had in a while, like a really full ballroom. Mm. Well, I hope it's because everybody's reading your book, which I think is a must read for all Americans for sure. And not just parents, but for everyone um, yes. I, I think your writing is brilliant and vivid, and it, it's, it's a book that really powerfully analyzes the policy and the politics while also giving voice to the voiceless. And um, it's just really smart and, and important. So let's start with that if we can. As we have this conversation, uh, I'm going to pick up my kids next week for Thanksgiving, tomorrow for Thanksgiving. Uh, we just had one person in our family come down with COVID. It's the host of Thanksgiving. So everything's going upside down again. Oh boy. Um, RSV is everywhere, right? We're trying to figure out 
um, how to regain what we've lost. But let's start with with the big picture. Why did you write this book? You 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 were you were an expert at NPR, and and I've been tracking your education work for so long. But why did you feel like you needed to write this book on you? Yeah. Um, so I think when we talked in May 2020, I already kind of had my mission in hand because. I was this front row observer to the national education scene, not just to what was happening with my kids. And I had contacts all over the country. I also was really drawing on my experiences um, actually with Hurricane Katrina. So, you know, I, I grew up in New Orleans. I was down there two weeks after the storm. I stayed there off and on that year. And that was where my head immediately went because there are so few analogies for times in modern times where rich countries close the doors of their schools. And it happens when there's a major disruption, right? Around the world, it happens when there's a civil war, a crisis, a pandemic, uh, or a natural disaster. And I knew from Katrina that it's a big deal. It's a big deal when schools close down because schools, especially in America, are all we got. They are the sole pillar of the social welfare system in this country. And that is, it's on its own, that's an egregious fact. That's a crisis. Um, but when you close those doors and you close the doors to, you know, the second largest public meal system, the warm, well-lighted place where we have, you know, in a city like New York, one in 10, one in 10 of the children are unstably housed or in shelters. So schools are their place. And so I knew it was going to be a really big deal. And I knew that I was one of the people positioned to tell that deal, to, to write it down, to, to, to bear witness to that and to help people understand um, what it was going to mean. Mm. And especially, you know, it's childcare, it's mental health care, it's food, it's, it's all those things, especially for the working class and for the poor in this country. Right. And, That's and, right. you know, you could see some folks had a great pandemic. Some folks had a brutal pandemic. Right. I think I think that's the truth. And I know people of all, you know, social and and political backgrounds. And I I saw that to be true. Right. The folks who could could airlift their kids out and create a little pod in their Hamptons house and other folks, you know, had nothing. So can you talk about when you reflect on the big picture? um, I want to talk about what we got right, what we got wrong, what what we should do next time. But Mm -hmm. in your view, what did we get wrong? Because I I think one of the untold stories of uh, the political election that we just had in California, in New York, especially, is you saw Democrats get pounded. And I think they got pounded in part because people felt they went overboard on COVID restrictions. I think Hochul and Newsom, especially among moderates and Republicans, were wildly unpopular. And I think it was a a lot to do with COVID and shutting down Mm -hmm. schools and masks. But you have a much more nuanced and, and thoughtful analysis. What did we get wrong? What did we really get wrong on you? So, um, you know, I had the luxury of not focusing on the political calculations. And I think there were, you know, there were leaders that did a really good job, like in, um, to some extent, Connecticut and Rhode Island. They were blue state governors who communicated the urgency of putting our kids first. Um, And so there were, and there were obviously people that really capitalized on the social divisions. But to me, the key issue is this. If you have accepted the fact that schools and to a certain extent, childcare is an essential service in our society, then you your decisions flow from there. And so in our European peer countries that also had a tough time with COVID. Now, you know, let's not move, we could pull back to the counterfactual of like, we could have not had a COVID disaster that we had, right? So right. never lose sight of the fact that like, 
a lot of lives could have been saved and that would have been the the most, you know, um, preferable scenario. But assuming COVID came, you know, the CDC messed up the testing and, and the COVID is spreading around the country. Now, what do you do? England, Italy, France, Switzerland, the Nordic countries, they pretty quickly made a determination that they were going to reopen their schools and keep them open as much as they could. And they were very clear. The, the European equivalent of the CDC was clear in a way that our CDC was not, that schools were an essential service for vulnerable children. And so decisions flowed from there. And so you saw in the fall of 2020, there was renewed COVID waves and they closed down their bars, their restaurants, their nightclubs. Germany closed down its legal brothels and its outdoor holiday markets, kept the schools open. Mm. And the message that comes with that is, we understand what this is for vulnerable kids and we're not going to, to walk away from our responsibility. Now, there were parents that were scared and kept their kids home if they had the privilege to do so. There were teachers that maybe didn't want that job, you know, to, to do that. But there was over time a consensus built in those societies that were putting our kids at the heart of our decisions. And that is where I really point the finger at the U.S. across the board. Yeah. So the reality was we had bars open and schools closed. That is what we had. And that is a unique American folly. Yeah. And, and there was this argument about business and this argument about freedom but I think as we talked about last time you were on the show, you know, kids can't vote. Kids yeah. don't have a lobby. Um, kids you, know, you rarely heard kids. I kept making this point. You rarely heard kids interviewed in the media. That's right. Right. You heard from parents. You heard you didn't even hear from teenagers much. And, and I think now, you know, I have uh, a kid that's now a first grader. We're keeping him back uh, in, in first grade again, which we think is the right decision. We've got another kid who's in free 3k in new york which is yeah. unique to new york and i think one of the real uh unsung heroes of of, of what's happening in this city um yeah. but i see the impact on my kids and i see the impact on other kids and i think if you really watch you can see the difference in the way kids interact the way they feel the way they learn but can you, you you've really pulled this apart in some powerful ways can, can you break down um whether it's data-driven or statistically, however you look at it, what was the yeah. impact now on kids that were learning? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think there's, um, you can segment it out in a bunch of different ways, right? So social interaction, bottom line, that's a key part of kids' healthy development. Once they get past the age of like 18 months or so, peer interaction starts to be important and more and more important um, to their to their learning to interact and to their um, their their healthy development and to their moods and their energy and all of that. So uh, kids suffered from that social isolation, even the really privileged ones. And some of them suffered a lot. And that's why we have a youth mental health crisis with increased rates of anxiety, depression, also eating disorders. You're also seeing OCD. Um, and then uh, so that's that's on the mental health and it and it it is a curve that goes along from the you know the the younger kids tended to bounce back a little bit quicker. The teenagers may just be feeling it now because mm -hmm. there's a sort of lang languishing long tail effect of realizing what you lost and trying to recover it, right? Um, then there's sort of developmental learning stuff. So we had a forty percent drop in kids that were referred to social special ed services at a young age. So typically there's been this revolution in early intervention, which is from zero to three at the pediatrician's office in the childcare system, people saying, well, this kid's not quite hitting their milestones. Let's put them into early intervention. And that early intervention, and then the 3K and the 4K, the pre-K has 
been so, so influential in helping kids get that help that they need to eventually get onto a track to be with their peers because developmental disorders follow developmental pathways. So, you know, people say learning loss isn't real because they don't actually forget what they learned. Well, when you talk about a kid with a disability diagnosis, they do forget what they learned. They Mm -hmm. do progress. They go back. Okay. So kids not getting those referrals in the zero, if they were COVID babies, March 20, they're now, you know, two years old. We're seeing speech delays. We're seeing heightened rates of, of need for referrals and services. And then, you know, what this comes into, it slams into a system that is totally overburdened. People have been leaving, teachers are burnt out. And so you have kids with a lot of needs and you have a system with a diminished ability to meet those needs. Mm. And and that's kind of where I see us now, right? Like my, my, my older yeah. boy has been to, to uh, four schools in four years. Yeah. Um, and he's been through, you know, a lot of change. And I see the anxiety on his yeah. generation, right? Like when we were their age, we didn't have to worry about our friends around us dying. The closest thing that I had was AIDS, right? And that was not immediate. You didn't see people falling around unless you were in certain communities. You didn't see people going down around you. You weren't yeah. worried about spreading it. So there's this like baked in anxiety that I feel is really unique to this generation and the mental health crisis, which I think is is maybe the most underreported part of all of this. I come from the mental health community working with veterans. And what I know is trauma comes later, right? You experience the trauma, then the grieving comes, then the mourning comes and and trauma could happen 10 years later. I always tell the story about World War II veterans who experienced Pearl Harbor, who who had uh, stressful experiences when 9-11 happened. I mean, mm. it, was, it was a generation later, but that trauma is baked in, and especially if it's untreated, can come out down the line. So can you talk about the trauma specifically and what what how traumatic this was for children? Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate you bringing that up. And I think, you know, so one of the aspects I talked, um, I talked to a lot of people about was, you know, you think about how kids recover from grief. So we have a generation of COVID orphans. That is almost like the, the core of the pain that comes for this for these children. There's 213,000 children in the United States that have lost one, at least one caregiver to COVID. That's a, a cohabiting grandparent or a parent. So that in itself, I mean, that is a wave. That's an adverse childhood experience. It's a childhood trauma. And also just as an analogy for how you think about it, you know, when kids recover from mourning or grieving a loss at a young age, when they get to new developmental stage, it's almost like they have to grieve it again. So they go through and you see that people kind of re-experience the trauma as they grow. And I think we're, just as you said, like we're going to see kids who are reaching their teenage years, who this was their elementary school experience, and they're going to have a delayed reaction potentially. Mm-hmm. So I've been saying since the beginning that this is a decade, decade and a half. This is a generational issue. Now, where is the, you know, positive core of that, right? How do we transform this? Because the the one thing that I always say is that like kids, the reason we love kids so much is they are potential. They are pure potential. And none of, no kid in the COVID generation is doomed. They are all full of potential. They can all go back and they can have an even better life, you know? Because the thing that's so fascinating to me to think about is like when I started talking about parents, writing about parents and kids, we thought our kids were too coddled, right? We thought they were too soft. We thought they lacked mm-hmm. grit. We thought they la- you know, they were, they lacked failure. They needed to fail and they need to get out and, you know, they needed to be free range and they need to get out in the woods. And 
Now our kids, no one would say that an American kid lacks grit. Like they have been through a thing, this mm. COVID generation. And so how do we turn that into a reflection of a possible strength? Mm. Can I, I want to hold you there because this is a, you know, this has been a debate in the veterans community, especially since 9-11 about whether or not post-traumatic growth is yes. resiliency, yes. strength. Can you be stronger at the broken places? But, and I want to come to that, but I also want to stay on the education system because what I see is it's cracking. And, yeah. and now you said you're exhausted. I'm exhausted. We're all exhausted. Teachers are really exhausted. They're past the, the, the adrenaline. They're past pushing through the fourth quarter. And many of them are retiring. Yeah. And a lot of them aren't joining. So I feel like we're at this place where our education system is just simply hollowed out in terms of human capital, where we've destroyed the older generation. The middle generation is, is worn out. The younger generation isn't coming. So can you underscore, and again, I, I approach this in a framework of COVID as a war, right? We went through this war, that we've, we've declared the war is over, and now we're going through the post-war analysis. We haven't even really gotten to rebuilding yet, but we know the Russian military is completely hollowed out now by this war with Ukraine. How decimated is our education system, Anya? Yeah, I think that's really astute, that analogy. And I think that the idea of being hollowed out is, is really interesting. You know, when I looked around at the research of school closures in the past, um, one thing that often would happen is that there would be a total reimagining of the school system. So we saw this after Katrina, right? There was a shock doctrine, totally from the ground up reimagining of the school system. And, you know, there were big fans of that and big not fans of that, you know, creating an all charter school district. And there were definitely growing pains. You know, there are things that people um, would not wish on anyone, but there was a huge infusion of people and money into the system. And when you look at where the school system in New Orleans is today, it is better by a lot of measures. I mean, there are things that they've lost. They lost the idea of having a neighborhood school because kids are going all over the city. And that's a huge thing because it's a very neighborhood driven city. But there are, you know, there's been a lot of wisdom and a lot of lessons learned. And I think if you look at how, for example, they reacted to um, the storm to COVID, I want to say the storm to COVID, mm. they did better than some places because they've been through that. They've mm. been through that need to pivot and they've been through the need to be resilient. And actually New Orleans is one of the few places and they wrote to me and told me this because I talked on um, an Andy Slavitt's podcast about this, about how nobody had bars closed and schools open. In New Orleans, they did. In the fall of 2020, there was a brief period of time where they got their schools open and they had the bars closed. So sometimes systems learn and remake themselves. Rwanda is another example. So the, the nation of Rwanda after the genocide completely reinvented their school system from the ground up. I don't see that energy right now. Mm. I don't see the reinventors. What I see right now is there have been forces in American society that oppose public schools that really don't want to see them. They want a privatized system where you know, religious people can homeschool their kids as they see fit. And basically anybody else, it's whatever they can handle, whatever they can manage to do for themselves. That's the, the, the energy that's coming in right now. And you have people leaving the school system and there's a demographic slump as well. So the public schools are going to lose students no matter what they do. So how do you reconstitute the system? And where is the vision? Where's the juice mm -hmm. to really mm -hmm. get a new system out there? There's some flares or some bright spots, but like, Oh, it is a very tight slog right now. You know, I we we thought a lot about this in in my previous job because we we you know we saw what happened after Katrina, 
And there was a, you know, a potential to reimagine everything, but it also became a deeply entrenched political fight about ideology because, you know, when you wipe out a city, it's a chance to come in and say, let's try charter schools everywhere, or let's double down on public schools and reimagine them. And, And this is maybe the perfect issue for independent Americans, because it feels like you've got extremes on both sides and the hybrid model may be best, but is hard to achieve, or it may be the default of, of what we get. So it feels like, you know, the old saying at the VA was, if you've seen one VA, you've seen one VA. Mm-hmm. Is it the case now in America where if you've seen one school, you've seen one school? Because it seems like there there's such a discrepancy between public and private and Oklahoma versus California. Um, it, it feels like everybody's, you know, kind of doing their own thing. And I don't know what that means for the future for our children and maybe also just for continuity, you know, and community as a nation when our education system is so unfair. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I, I too, want to see that national vision after the war. What's our Marshall Plan, right, for for education? But it doesn't seem to be out there. So can you talk to all of that? And also, is there anyone in your view that is presenting a vision? Maybe it's on the fringes. Maybe it's in academia. Maybe it's on the ground. What what is what does a future vision look like? So I definitely look to the grassroots and that's the teachers in the classrooms for the emerging uh, innovations that are truly going to have the most impact on our kids. So a couple of themes that I'm seeing. One is social emotional is not BS. Like mm-hmm. schools learned on a very visceral level that the well-being of everybody inside that building is crucial to their mission. And it doesn't matter how many people try to come in and tell you that social emotional is woke or whatever, Mm -hmm. like they know it, they know because they've seen it and they, and corollary to that, they know that relationships are the core of what they do. And so teachers always, always kind of do that, but like there's more framework to support that as the center of the whole program, because people saw like, okay, you go home. Well, who's text, who can you text, right? Who, whose number do you have and who will help you out with this? The parent-teacher relationship got stronger. The expectation for contact between parents and teachers got stronger between schools and teachers and then between students and teachers and students and each other. Because, you know, students really, why do students go to school? They go to school to see their friends. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. just what it is. So social, emotional, mental health, that's at the core. Um, The other things that I kind of see emerging, uh, the importance of partnerships. So, we know schools. So what do you do when you're hollowed out? You call for reinforcements. How can community groups and nonprofits and other uh, other public institutions in the community be the school's reinforcements? And how can they work together? I'm seeing so many places where schools are uh, benefiting from working more closely with these community groups, whether that is to bring services that push in or uh, supplement learning, um, you know, extra tutoring. And then the things the kids miss the most. I mean, what they really missed during the pandemic, they missed the outdoor time, the playtime, the embodied learning, the physical learning. So it's those things that are like more important than ever before. Mm. Um, The other area where partnerships are really important is for our high school kids because they have disconnected from school and they don't see the point of it. And the sad truth is that a lot of high schools, there is not a whole lot of a point to it, right? right? Just to get there, to get that diploma, to get out. But the partnerships the co-ops, the internships and dual enrollment programs where you can be in college and high school at the same time. Mm. That's what's going to say, oh, that's why I'm here. I'm here to get the certificate. I'm here because I get to go to the garden, the community garden that I really love. So that's how I think we crawl Mm. our way back is through realizing the schools cannot be doing it alone. It's it's such an important perspective because, I mean, 
I know parents know this. Like my kid didn't have a social worker at his school for a period last year. He didn't have a mental health care worker at his school a period last year. And, and that was not uncommon, right? Yeah. Our, forget about the art teachers and music teachers and so many other people that went down, right? Or just disappeared and they couldn't backfill them. But the hollowing out of the social components, you know, one of the things that I've seen with my first grader is they have to learn how to handle their bodies, how to not crash into each other. What's an okay push or a hit? How do you play soccer? Like they don't know because they haven't been banging into each other for two and a half years. So they don't yes. have to bang into each other, right? Those are the pieces that I think are really important. But I want to ask you, I want to move forward on, on the what's next piece, but I also want to ask you something specific. I think the Secretary of Education has been invisible. I had to Google it to remind myself that it was Miguel Cardona, right? Yeah. But, you know, we had a, a, a Secretary of Education, Arnie Duncan, under Obama, that was playing in the NBA uh, All-Star Celebrity Game, was everywhere, was on, you know, late night shows. But, you know, Cardona seems, in my view, invisible. And I, you know, would fault Biden for that most of all. I don't think Biden and the Secretary of Education are anywhere on, on the national radar. Can you talk about that and, and you know, where... The leadership should come from them, in my view. Um, but but how do you evaluate their performance, frankly? Uh, I, yeah, I think it's a disaster. I think it's a vacuum of ideology in a way, because what happened was that so we had a bipartisan consensus in education, which was a reformist consensus, which was really um, exemplified, started with No Child Left Behind 2001, you know, or George W. Bush. It really was a Republican crossover event where Republicans decided to make themselves known in education and then Democrats picked up and ran with it. Unfortunately, that consensus sent, ended up centering around uh, testing, high stakes testing and technology in a way that benefited nobody other than the testing companies and the technology companies. So mm -hmm. there's an ed tech boom, which I covered as a reporter, None of that stuff. And then Bill Gates, right? He had one idea after another. He was like the music man coming to town with right. one idea after another to right. magically fix education. None of that moved the needle. None of it closed in education gaps. None of it inspired teachers coming into the profession. They were demonized. They were put in the center of a bullseye. You know, you're going to get penalized for your kids' test scores. And Bill Gates legitimately with a straight face, his big idea was we're going to put cameras in the classroom and then someone's going to be watching your teachers to make sure that they get better at their jobs. Well, that's not how people get better at their jobs. Right. I'll just tell you, not with right, cameras, right. not with surveillance. Right, right. So then Betsy DeVos was this like wet dream of a like total, let's just destroy public education. Like her mission since day one has been destroying public education for the sake of the Christians, for the sake of the money people, the libertarians. and the segregationist. It really goes back like her. And I go back, I go into this in the book, but the ideology that she draws on is private religious homeschools. That's what she wants. And for-profit schools. So Cardona is a reaction to a lot of excesses of a lot of years. And he's basically just like, it's like nobody's in charge. You know, it is like an empty chair right there. And he came into office with the simplest mandate, which was like, keep the schools open which, okay, great. We want the schools open, but what then? Right. 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 And so, and so this is what's really, so I'm just amplifying what you're saying, what's really lacking here. But I think that the problem is that there's been 20 years and like the entire time that I've been covering education, there have been, there's just been one bad idea after another. And the good ideas have struggled, you know, to, to really take center stage and we'll do anything except for listen to teachers and mm. listen to parents. 
Yeah, and who are the leaders, right? Like who are our wartime leaders, right? Like, and, and it's at the point where like, we're asking our teachers, it's almost like, I don't know, a, de a demented version of Vietnam. We're like, we're asking them to fight in a war that we're not sure we support. And then when we come home, they come, we come, they come home, we shit on them. Like yeah. teachers have never been under fire or, you know, micromanaged or abused, right? Like they, they are now it's a thankless, you know, profession already and an underpaid profession already. And you've got the teachers unions by default that are becoming the voices for them. But I really think it's an important thing that I've thought about. Like, who is the leader for America on education? We don't have one, right? Yeah. And, and, and there aren't even visible voices in, in this movement. And I feel like it's a time where maybe the young people will rise up and we'll see an immersion of, of new voices. But I, I think it's a crisis of leadership. And, and I don't hear the president talking about it I, as a parent. I don't, every day he should be talking to us about what's happening to our kids. And we all know our kids have been traumatized. And it's as though they don't recognize it. They want to put it in the rearview mirror. It's not talking about the fact that we all just went through this. Yeah. Um, and, and I think a failure to focus even on what we're focused on. Like, yeah. is, like we did this in the veteran space. Wellness of the veteran was kind of what we were looking at, right? Yeah. Not just how they did on a test or whether they had a disability. You create kind of a, a, ma a matrix or, or an algorithm that can create a wellness index. And yeah. I feel like we don't have that for children. It's testing in some places. It's whether they're in school or dropout rates. But nobody's asking them if they're suicidal. I mean, nobody's asking them if they're hungry. I mean, these pieces, I think, are, are kind of brewing below the surface. And frankly, I'm, I'm worried about how it's going to start to emerge in the next couple of years. I love that you said that. And I love the analogy. I think it's really, really important because, you know, everyone went crazy about the NAEP scores. But that is such the the math tests, right? It's such a limited vision of what, who we are, who we want our kids to be, how they want them to see themselves. Right. Um, but the other thing that you said that I think is really important is how the youth leadership, right? Like as much as we're saying that it's like, it's garbage and there's nobody leading on education. I definitely look to the March for our lives, kids, right? Like the first, the March for our lives, the Parkland kids, and obviously they should never have to do, have had to do this or create this movement. But one of the first Parkland protesters was just elected to Congress. Yep. 25 years old. Right. Yep. So that is the leadership. And, and in the area that I'm working on on climate, I mean, it is young people asking their schools to have relevant material on climate because they are saying that they are upset. They're worried. They want to get active on the subject and they want to learn more. So I talked to a kid in Portland, Portland public schools passed the best climate policy in the country because the students organized and pushed for it. So I would say elevate the leadership of the kids themselves. Mm -hmm. This is something we've we rarely have this. I mean, it's on the fringes in education. This, but it keeps coming back. This progressive idea of like, what if we actually ask the kids what mm -hmm. they want, mm -hmm. right? Because what worries me about the mental health frame, I and mean, I love talking about mental health frame. I think it's our, the mental health and well being of our kids is paramount, absolutely. But our kids are not just you know victims; they are people full of potential. And school is not just about them, you know, not being depressed. Like you said, what's their wellness? What's their goal? What's their big why? You know, we have some huge challenges that we want our kids to be prepared to, to meet. And so, you know, that's really what school is about. And I think we can learn a lot from listening to the kids. I, I, I think that's the core of everything. And, and I, you know, I also had this experience of teaching on a college campus yeah. where I saw something very unique happening too, which is coaches we're filling the void. Mm. There are a couple of factors like professors tended to be older and they had higher health risks. So they were mm. less likely to be in the classroom and they would be on Zoom. 
coaches could take them outside. You mm -hmm. could be outside, you could talk to them. It wasn't just about school and they were visible leaders. And, and I think we're, I'm, I'm anxious to explore this over the next couple of years, but I really feel like coaches, and it might be a chess coach or a football coach, but anybody who could be with kids uh, yeah. in, in that environment physically are, are probably going to be the folks that they look to for mentorship, for leadership, for guidance. And, and you know, it's, it's one of maybe the upsides is that America's got such a sports centric education system that the kids who were in sports, I think, will probably do better than the ones who weren't. I mean, mm -hmm. you may have data on that. But as we think forward, you've been good at, at, at touching on a couple of these pieces. What do we get right, Anya? And what does that mean for what's next? as RSV and the next pandemic comes, what did we get right and and what's coming next? What did we get right about our COVID response or? Yes, yes. is there anything we got right? I mean, I'm sure there are some things. You mentioned the resiliency of our kids, but is there anything we can look to to say that was something we did right in America? That's a really tough one. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I think um, it's, you know, we lost so many people, Paul. We lost more than a million Americans. And we had the highest death rate of any wealthy country in here. So um, obviously, I mean, I think you can definitely point to the development of the COVID-19 vaccines and the initial rollout. I think you've seen what's been interesting is that, you know, the, the uptake of that was so linked to ideology and it still kind of is, and that's terrible. Um, the monetary response to COVID-19 was super interesting. So I, I document this in my book. So right when schools shut down, there was a unprecedented spike in child hunger. Okay. Mm -hmm. And that was something that researchers told me they had not seen before in the time that they'd been looking into this issue. But what was so interesting was by the end of the year, and then with Biden coming in with a child tax credit, child poverty actually dropped and it dropped significantly over the last two years. So there was a really interesting whiplash effect. And I saw it in the families that I followed, you know, none of them ended up losing their homes, for example, which is really huge. Um, even the ones that were out of work, uh, they were able to spend some time at home with their family and actually have income supplementation, which for some of them, that was their only paid leave that they'd ever had mm -hmm. as a parent. Mm -hmm. So the, the family togetherness is very real. It's not bullshit. And it was a buffering effect, you know, as stressful as it was for parents and for caregivers, there was a buffer in being together. And I, and I know parent, I know families now when they look back on that COVID time, there's a little tiny bit of nostalgia for that. As long as you weren't yourself an essential worker on the front lines, you kind of feel like, wow, like I remember when the world shut down and there was nothing for us to do except be together. Mm -hmm. And I think for families, especially in our like hectic overscheduled, in our socioeconomic band, like that's a very precious thing that hopefully people remember. Yeah, yeah I think so. I mean, you know, I, maybe I'll have to have you back for for whether whether the the uh, technology innovations around education were uh, were 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 a bright spot or were good or not. I mean, you know, I, I definitely have a different perspective on content than I used to. I'm maybe a bit more open to some kinds of digital content for my kids than I would have been before the pandemic. But I also think um, the the things like the moratorium on on uh on on rent and on mortgages things that we did that seemed to at least keep people in their homes yeah. um, but i think it's 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 just it feels like wreckage right it feels like so much wreckage that we're still picking through it and we're trying to figure it out so as we do that and it's thanksgiving let me ask you to to kind of wrap this up you're also a parent 
you've been through this yourself. If somebody you know else is a parent, um, what did you learn? What would you recommend worked for you and your family that might work for other people who have kids who are just looking for leadership and now are looking to you? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in all of my talks, I talk about post-traumatic growth and I know you mentioned post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic growth, you know, can be controversial, but part of what they say is to foster it. You have to talk about it. So talking with my kids simply about the fact that they went through something and they might be better because of it. That is really the first step. And I try to bring up the memories of the pandemic and put them into context of like, okay, you know, there's some stuff that we missed out on, but we also had this time together. And you have seen history, like you, my kids, my 10 year old, my, my um, six year old, they've seen history themselves. And so when we talk about history, we just, we just visited Plymouth. So mm-hmm. just on the way to the first Thanksgiving. Right. Um, and I was like, this is great. I'm such a nerd. So uh, they loved it and realizing, okay, wow. Like those people, they went through this plague, right? They lost half of the village in the first winter. And it's like, well, you guys know something about that. You know, something mm-hmm. about History, we're all connected by history and putting it in that long perspective is something I never fail to find inspiring. Mm. I I think that's a a great message to to end with because they're they're not only seeing history, they're they're writing it now. And and I think they're empowered and and rising to a moment. I mean, if there's one thing that my little kids feel is a sense of power. I mean, even understanding that, you know, back in the days, if you don't wear a mask, you're going to kill grandma. Right. Like. That that is a huge amount of responsibility for little ones that I think is is going to create some post traumatic growth. Um, and they've been through something really hard that I don't even pretend to imagine. Um, but I am as as we get to this Thanksgiving, I am extremely grateful for your leadership. I love the book. Uh, you're going to stick around for a couple of extra pieces for our Patreon members. Patreon members especially, thank you for making this content possible. Everybody, go out and check out the Stolen Year. Get it for the holidays. Get it for everybody you know. Uh, and please keep engaging in this conversation. Anya, you are a true hero. And I'm so glad you wrote this book. And I read everything you write. And I'm grateful for everything you do. And I wish you and your family a very happy Thanksgiving. Same to you, Paul. Thank you so much for having me. This is Thank a really you. great conversation. Yeah. Stay vigilant. Thank you. This Thanksgiving, I am incredibly thankful for Anya and her leadership. Check out her website, anyakeminitz.net. Definitely get her book, The Lost Year. It's very smart. It's very moving. It's very good. And it makes a great holiday gift. This Thanksgiving, Anya is a voice we should all be thankful for. And like so many others, despite the challenges and the pain and the tumult, she is a true helper. Always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers, you know, even just on the sidelines, because if you look for the helpers, you'll know that there's hope. The helpers are out there. We see it every day, maybe especially around holiday times, but they are out there all across America, all around the world. And this Thanksgiving, we saw the best example of it I can think of in a very long time. And you should hear it in his own words. It may not even have been a window left. But I saw a lot of people, and this guy was there, and I saw the ACU pattern uh, flag vest. And for me, that was like, there's a handle. I'm getting it. So I ran across the room, grabbed the handle, pulled him down, and then started to, uh, well, actually, I think I went for his gun with him 
his rifle flew in front of him. Um, and the young man that tried to jump in there with me, um, he, he, we both either pulled him down or whatever, but he ended up at his head, uh, and right next to the AR. And then with the AR, he, we, I told him, push the AR, get the AR away from him. The kid pushed the AR. I, I don't know what his name was. Um, and then I, I proceeded to take his other weapon, the pistol, and then just start hitting him at where I could, but the armor's in the way. And I just started, I found a crease in his, between his, his armor and his head, and I just started wailing away uh, with his gun. Um, and then I told the kid in front of me, kick him, keep kicking him. And we were, I was, I was guiding, I was telling people, call 911, call 911. I brought him down. I, I, <laughs> I was in mode. I was, I was doing what I did. I do downrange, you know, I train, I trained for this. I don't want to ever do this. I, I didn't even retire because I was just, I was done doing this stuff. It was too much. And, uh, I, I'm, you know, it came in handy and, and I got to protect my, my kid. I lost my kid's boyfriend. I tried. I tried to have everybody in there. I still feel bad that there's five people. There's five people that didn't go home. And this, this guy, I told him while I was eating, I said, I'm going to kill you, man, because you tried to kill my friends. My family was in there. If you haven't heard or read about him yet, that's Richard Fierro. Five people didn't come home in Colorado Springs. Five people won't be at their family's table this Thanksgiving. But if not for Richard Fierro, it could have been a lot more. Lots of people in Colorado Springs are alive today because of him. Lots of people will be at their Thanksgiving table this week because of him. Richard Fierro represents the very best of us as Americans and as veterans. He is what a true hero looks like. When I say look for the helpers, that is the kind of person I am talking about. And I got a note. This week, so many people were so surprised that a combat vet was at an LGBTQ club. It shows how little people know about vets and how little they know about LGBTQ clubs. But people know courage when they see it. And Richard Fierro is the embodiment of courage. Thanksgiving is about family. And Richard Fierro is a helper that stood up for his family, for the American family. And he's the finest example of a helper we've seen in a very, very long time. So check out his story and check out the hashtag look for the helpers on Twitter and share yours this Thanksgiving, throughout the holidays, or anytime. And if Twitter goes down, don't worry. We're on Instagram, we're on Facebook, we're everywhere else. And when you're on social media, you can play Guess the Guest every Wednesday night. You know the deal. Look for the hashtag. I will post a picture. You guess the guest. And please also go to independentamericans.us. We're continuing to build out that site. And there is merch there that you can get now for the holidays. We got hoodies. I mentioned it last episode, but we got some very cool hoodies to keep you warm and to get you through Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, whatever else you got going on. Get a hoodie and we will take you through it. And sign up for our newsletter. We are going to get that cranked up, and it's going to be great. You can also see video of my conversation with Anya on YouTube. I did it from the kitchen this time. I turned it around so you get to see a little bit of what's behind my kitchen, where the magic happens. But that's all at our website. And you should also, if you haven't already, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this, and leave a review. And I am thankful especially for our Patreon members, the folks that help power this show 
You can become a Patreon member if you go to independentamericans.us or find us on Patreon. If you're not familiar with Patreon, it's a way to help us keep this content coming. And you get exclusive content and no ads. You can listen to the entire episode with no commercials. And I'm thankful for all of you. And I'm thankful for Mark D. Kershaw, who recently became a patron. Welcome, Mark. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. You will get the extra content with Anya, where we talk about her advice for parents, what she's reading, what she's watching, and more, and no ads. So thanks to all of our vigilant Patreon members and to all of you for listening. You're helping us continue to bring the five eyes in every podcast and everything we do. Independence, integrity, information, inspiration, and impact. And I'm especially thankful to the mighty Righteous Media team, creative Chris Rosenthal, brilliant Bill Schultz, and precise Paula Hernandez. And I am absolutely and especially thankful to my amazing wife, Lori, and my two boys. Love to eat turkey. <laughs> love to eat turkey. I love you. Love to eat turkey. Cause it's good. Love to eat Yes, that song makes my kids and my family and me very happy. And Thanksgiving is finally here, which means that song, which means food. It also means lots of sports. It's been a wild couple of weeks of sports, which included, sadly, the end of the F1 season. If you're not into Formula One, you saw the end of the season. Max Verstappen has won again. But there's also America-related news. It's official. We now finally have an American driver back on the F1 grid. If you don't know, there's only 20 drivers in F1, and we haven't had an American since 2016. And Logan Sargent, 21-year-old from Florida, is the newest member of the F1 grid. He's going to race for Williams Racing, and I am now a Williams fan. Williams Racing, not Williams College. But congrats to Logan Sargent. Do us proud, kid. Between this news and the fact that there will be a Las Vegas Grand Prix next November, 2023 is going to be bonkers for American F1 fans. So let's go. Turkey lurkey do and turkey lurkey dap. I eat that turkey then I take a nap. Thanksgiving is here and so is the World Cup. And it's a bummer F1 is ending, but it's offset by the start of the World Cup at a time when we all badly need anything they can help bring the world together. And I got to tell you, there's no better place in the world to experience it than here in New York City, where people of the world come together to celebrate and root for their team. And me and the boys and my wife are definitely rooting for Team USA. They are a diverse and driven and dynamic team, one of the youngest teams in the World Cup and a group we can definitely get behind. And in the first game, they had a rough one. They tied their underdog opponent, Wales, one-to-one, which my boys keep calling the whales. They think it's a country full of whales. It's not. We explained it. But they tied whales one-to-one. It was a grinding battle, a lot of grit by whales and a lot of mistakes by the U.S., and they showed their youth and inability to close out that game, and it was a tie. And I got to tell you, I hate ties. I know it's a very American perspective, but I really hate ties. It's one of those things about soccer that I just can't get over. But I still believe in this team, and they're going to play England next on Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern, and then they play Iran on Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern. And that is a game that is going to overflow with some politics like so many others, because we've covered what's going on in Iran. 
And the Iranian team bravely protested at the start of their game this week by not singing the national anthem. So the World Cup, every single match will be very much about much more than just soccer, especially when the U.S. plays Iran. But before that, my Giants play the Cowboys on Thanksgiving Day, and the Bills play the Lions in the early game, and the Patriots play the Vikings in the late game. And on Saturday, if you haven't had enough, on Saturday you get an extra helping of football with undefeated Michigan against undefeated Ohio State. It is going to be a battle. And this Thanksgiving, sports can bring us together in a way that is really special as Thanksgiving brings us together in ways we really haven't seen since the pandemic started. Turkey with gravy and cranberry. Can't believe the Mets traded Dallas strawberry. So enjoy it, people. Channel a little bit of Adam Sandler and be good to each other. Especially as Thanksgiving in America is here, we're all in this together. Throughout this holiday season, independent Americans are leading the way. And we're fighting the forces of ignorance and stupidity. We might be greatly outnumbered, but we can win. Just like Japan won over highly favored Germany today. We can win. The good guys and gals can win in fights big and small, in the fight for the future of our country, on the battlefields of Ukraine, and in the battlefields of America. From a gay club in Colorado Springs to a Walmart in Virginia. We can win against the biggest threats. We can win against gun violence, against Russia. We can win against extremism. We can win against the two-party duopoly, apathy, indifference, hate, and the threat of our massively expanding waistlines after that meal this week. So stay vigilant, my friend, because eternal vigilance is the price of freedom. And know you're not alone in your vigilance. We're all vigilant, and the independent wave is continuing to grow. And we're all in this together especially this Thanksgiving. From Joshua in Colorado Springs to Elon Musk in the Twitterverse to Carrie Lake in Arizona to all the teachers in our schools to all the guests you've heard on this show who are still inside Ukraine. From Chuck Berry to Adam Sandler. From all those that stood up in Colorado Springs to all those battling in Virginia to all those fighting in Ukraine. From Anya Kamenitz, especially to Robert Fierro, to you. I'm your host, Paul Rykov. Thank you for listening. Down with Putin. Slava Ukraine. Happy Thanksgiving to you and yours. And stay vigilant, America. Powered by Righteous Media.